many of you know that I obviously get a paper, and one of the things I, I like to read in the newspaper when I do get it, as we're saying to folk during the week when we're doing our devotionals, I'm, I'm a good Scotsman, so I'm kind of too mean to pay £2 a day for a newspaper, uh, and I'm too old-fashioned to go and log on online and get it for half price and watch it on my Kindle or something else, and so I still buy one. But one of the things I, I like reading is the obituaries, um, because they, um, they're a good insight into people's lives and, and a good reminder of, of just sometimes people with, whose names, obviously there are people who are peer in the obituaries that we know of, film stars and actors and well-known people, of course there are, but there are also other people that we maybe don't know about but who really lived lives. And I've noticed recently, the last, over the last, so happens over the last six months, interesting Scott was just mentioning that, a number of older people who have passed on that, what might be regarded as the wartime generation, those who are now in their late 90s are passing on. I'm just going to make reference to a couple of people um, who were in the same paper as obituaries this past week. One was a man named Dick Jolly, Jolly, I think probably, inspirational and heroic soldier who fought in the Far East and was twice awarded the Military Cross for his bravery and leadership. As a young man of 22, he was involved in a battle. And again, uh, I remember when I came at first, there was members of the congregation who he had been in the Burma, he was in the Burma Star. He had fought in Burma during the war. Um, the Forgotten Army, it was often called. Well, uh, Dick Jolie and many others fought in Burma and particularly on the border between Burma and India. And he was involved in the spring of 1944 in a battle when the Japanese invaded India. And some of you may know the story. It ended up there was a battle around the kind of local government governor's um, pavilion, house, bungalow, and his tennis court. And basically the Japanese were on one side of the tennis court and the defending troops were on the other side of the tennis court and there was hand-to-hand -hand fighting and, well, you can imagine a very bloody battle. And, and I've not obviously got time to go through all of this, but he fought, he led his men there, and he was awarded the military cross. And then later on, in 1945, nearly part of 1945, as British troops went into Burma to liberate Burma from the Japanese, he again led people. And this time he was shot in the kneecap, and despite that, he, he told all his soldiers to go away, to, to go to safety, to leave them lying in a field, a paddy field for death or whatever, but one of the Indian soldiers came back and carried him on his shoulder back to the camp. And for that man's baby, he got an award, and this gentleman, and he lived to the age of 90, 98. Um, he did well. And, and there's a whole story that go online, Dick Jolie. And another side of the paper is a story of a woman, Professor Greta Verbova, Verbova, I think, who was brought up in Slovakia, part of Czechoslovakia, again, a young girl before the war. She was one of many people in Central Europe who were Jewish in background, but weren't, in a sense, ardent Jewish people. They fitted in, seemingly, to the culture of the town. His, her father was a butcher, her mother was a, a dressmaker. They were very much part of that community, and yet how insidiously anti-Jewish anti-Semitism came in even to that country. She recounts the story of how her best friend at school told her, just as 1939, just when war was starting, she would no longer be able to be friends with her because she was Jewish. And, and, and the whole story, her father was just during the night was taken. She never saw her father again. She and her mother eventually were arrested and were taken to the Gestapo headquarters in Bratislava. She had already been warned by a school friend who had escaped from Auschwitz of what was happening there. 
and she was warned by that. And sitting in the office of the Gestapo headquarters in Bratislava, she had the opportunity to jump out of a window. It was just one up, it wasn't too high, and to run away. And she turned to her mother and said, come on, mum, let's go. And by this time, her mother's spirit was broken. Her mother said, no, just you go. I can't live anymore. And the young girl jumped out the window to escape. She never, ever saw her mother Again And then again, a massive story of, of suffering and of challenge, and yet she became a neuroscientist who fled, as it says at the beginning, both Nazis and communists from Czechoslovakia to do groundbreaking work on the interaction between nerves and muscles. And she died at 93. Tremendous people. In many ways, the world is not worthy of such People. When I read those two obituaries, I was moved to think of what that generation lived through, war and all the other things associated with that, and also deeply challenged about how in so many ways we have really struggled to cope with so little over these last six, eight months as a nation. And actually, if you look at the life of Jesus as a man, as many people do, then he might equal some of these people that appear in the paper. He actually might be surpassed by some of the people that you read about in the paper in terms of their life, in terms of the challenges they faced, in terms of what they had to journey through. If we look at Jesus simply as a man, as a teacher, as a prophet in Israel and Judah, way back in the first century AD, yes, he went through a lot, but he certainly would be equaled and perhaps even eclipsed by other people in the world who have done, humanly speaking, there'd be even greater things and went through even worse things than Jesus Christ went through. And I appreciate even saying that. Some of you will be thinking, oh my goodness. But Jesus is the person who turns our notions upside down. And so if we look at Jesus in that way, then, well, no, he's not unique. And he's not special, dare I say from the world's point of view. But if we look at Jesus as to not so much even what in a human sense he did, but who he is, then yes, he is radically different, but it also raises some very challenging issues on this Advent Sunday. Issues that rely and relate to how, why is the world, the world that these two people lived through and journeyed through. So let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 13, to Mark chapter 13, and we're going to pick up on some verses there, the beginning of Mark chapter 13. This is all part of the story of Holy Week, and we read in verse 1 of Mark chapter 13 that as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings, and Jesus replied, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And as Jesus was sitting in the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're all about to be fulfilled? We can perhaps imagine the scene. The disciples are walking with Jesus. We've already seen over these past Sundays how the tension was building up and how evil men were at work 
These two people I read, the bitches from earlier, would be able to testify to how cunning, how subtle, and how dark, and how ultimately demonic evil is, and how it manifests itself in so many different ways. Well, all of that is being played out and runs through the story of Holy Week, and Jesus is journeying through all of that. He doesn't just journey in the donkey into, into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He, in a sense, literal sense, walks through all of that during Holy Week, and all of that is happening. And the disciples are perhaps, maybe even somebody's trying to cheer Jesus up. They're perhaps trying to encourage him, perhaps trying to give themselves something to think about or distract themselves from the increasing sense of tension in the crowd and in all that's happening. And so they look at the temple. And they see that massive structure built by Herod the Great. It was meant really to almost to eclipse Solomon's temple. It had been built through slave labor. It had been built at the cost of great blood being shed. And, and, and it was built in many ways as a, as a token, as a sign of Herod, the puppet king of the Romans. Herod's desire to be recognized as the king of Israel. Massive building. And it stood there as a sign, as a symbol. Surely nothing could happen to that. Something so solid, something so strong, and yes, something so religious must stand through the test of time. And Jesus replies, as we saw, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And indeed, Jesus is talking not just about the temple. He looks at the palace and everything else surrounding round about it. He talks about a cataclysmic event when what seemed to be so solid and so stable and so sure will be turned to rubble. Who would have thought? A year ago, as we were preparing, I'd have been intimating this Sunday for our Advent supper, and we'd been organizing that, and we'd have been putting out a leaflet next week probably when the village Christmas was on. And the church would be full of the people for, for the school and the afternoon and all the other things that took place of what our plans were over the Christmas period. Who would have thought then we were looking forward, well, maybe not forward, but we're looking to a general election in December the 12th. Who would have thought then that we'd be gathered like this this morning, most of us at home and the rest of us here with our masks on and everything else? Things that seemed so solid, things that seemed so sure, things that seemed so permanent were suddenly thrown up into the air. Even relationships and the close connections with family and friends. Impacted, separated by distance, by social distance. By this regulation and that regulation. We've been through a year where many things that we took for granted and were confident would still be there for us have been at least called into question, if not, as I say, turned upside down. And Jesus here makes it clear that Jerusalem, that seems so settled, was going to be turned upside down. And, of course, he speaks about a specific event in history. Let me pick up, if you want, if you have your Bibles open or you're watching them on your phone or whatever, turn to verse 14, where he picks up and he says, When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Let the, let, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days to pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place 
in winter, because those will be the days of distress unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Indeed, he goes on to say, if the Lord had not cut short these days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. Now, as I said in the past, many times when we look at these teachings of Jesus about the end times, about his coming and about the events of history. He's speaking as the prophets did of a series of events that are in line behind each other. I've used before the analogy of looking over Nebia Valley to a set of hills and behind that a series of higher hills and then Nebia to the mountains to the Grampian Mountains and they all look quite close but actually there's a big distance between them. So Jesus like the prophets are speaking about a series of events that are going to take place. Some that have happened, some that are even happening and some that will happen in the future. But through all of these events, there, are, there is historical reality. And what Jesus particularly focuses on here when he talks about the temple and the buildings is what happened in Jerusalem in AD 70 when the Jewish people rose up in revolt against the Romans and they were besieged in the city. And the opportunity to escape was eventually cut off and the Romans surrounded and then very slowly but surely destroyed that city. A bit like the Battle of Stalingrad in the last war. Until it was left desolate. And tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people were put to the sword. And Israel as an entity as a nation, as a people in that sense, was dispersed only to regather this last century, and particularly in 1947, when the state of Israel was refounded. And Jesus is speaking about events in history that are bloody, that are cataclysmic, that turn things upside down. And we shouldn't be surprised, therefore, when these same things happen in our history and in our world today. Let's read on. Verse 5. Jesus said to the disciples, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. They are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. And account of me, you will stand before the governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. What Jesus is saying here, what he's unpackaging, what he's unrevealing to us is the story of human history, both before his coming and since his coming. Think of what he speaks about. He speaks about false religions rising up and people accrediting to themselves some messianic role. 
whether that be in other world religions or whether that be in the religions of some particular philosophy philosophy or world movement. And we've seen that again within our own last century. He speaks about war and human turbulence and stresses and strains between nations and peoples. He speaks about natural disasters, floods and earthquakes and famines and fires. He speaks of evangelism and the good use of the kingdom going out into all the peoples of the world, something which is still to be fully realized. He speaks about the persecution of the church and the rising tide of rebellion against God seen in the persecution of the church. And he speaks about the breakdown of human relationships within family, within society, within a community, the breakdown of trust, the breakdown of loyalty, the breakdown of respect for filial bonds and all the things that flow from that, the social dislocation that we see within our contemporary society today. He is so prophetic and so pointed and so true. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us there's nothing new under the sun. That's why, in a sense, we shouldn't really have been surprised at what happened last March. Not only because if we watched the news or followed things in media and everything, we'd have heard about what was happening in China and the things that were coming from there and even the way it was spoken about, yes. But, you know, we've been cootered, haven't we, for so long? That wartime generation is passing away. The memories of the realities of what that was like are going into history. And we all fall into the trap, Christian people just as much as anyone else, that the things that we see around about us and the things we take for granted will stand forever, and they won't. And they don't. And we've been so used to watching in a distance on our television screens what happens in other parts of the world. And rightly we are moved and our hearts are stirred and we, we make a response. But that's over there. Remember the words? Well, you won't remember, apart from maybe Mrs. Thompson here, what Neville Chamberlain said in 1930. Why are we basically, why are we worrying about what goes on amongst, in a distant land amongst distant people of, of, what we know, of whom we know little about? Czechoslovakia. And we've all been tempted to say the same thing about Iraq and Iran and Syria and elsewhere. We saw that very moving clip at the beginning with that song. But what happens when those mountains we see become volcanoes and there's earthquakes in the ground? What happens when the water we see lovely running down the streams becomes a flood and washes people's homes away? What happens when the sun rises another day of drought and famine? Even that song has its own ding to our understanding of what God is like and what the world is like. Its own spin. Not one that actually bears up to examination. To the persons sitting here who have been through great tragedy, 
and great sorrow. And I've journeyed through the mystery of life. And Jesus says that is the story. That's the story of the world. And that's the story that God's people have to journey through. And that raises many questions that, don't provide, that we can't easily answer. And how I urge those who disciple others never to fall into the trap. But I probably have fallen into the past of giving trite answers to questions that really this side of eternity have no answer. But Jesus makes it clear that these events will take place. But he also makes it clear that his purposes will be fulfilled through that. Let's pick up again in verse 20 of chapter 13. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. How we should thank God. It was only COVID-19 that went through our country. We can hardly cope with that. Just as well, wasn't it? The Spanish flu of 1918. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. His passion for his people, both Israel, and we need to watch what happens in the Middle East, and the significance of Jerusalem, and all the stories that are going on there. We need to read the signs of the times and understand them in that part of the world. But also the story of the church, of God's people. He gives that assurance that even in the midst of persecution, he says, whenever you're arrested and brought in trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for he is not for it's not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. God is with his people in the midst of these trials. We are going to celebrate the gift of Emmanuel. God with us, the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness neither understands it nor can overcome it. That light that persists, the light of life, the one who comes and fills us with the light of the glory of God in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit's ministry. He is with us us and with his people through times of trial and tribulation as well as times of joy and celebration. And for the sake of the elect, we're told, God is in control of those days. Look what he goes on to say. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. Who is Jesus Christ? He's the Lord of history. Who is Jesus Christ? He holds that timepiece in his hand, that scroll that the book of Revelation speaks about. Who is able to open that scroll? And there stands the day star, the bright risen conquering sun, the lion of the tribe of Judah, David's greater son, and he opens the scroll. He alone is worthy to do that. And he warns us. And tells us, because he cares for us, that we are not to be deceived by false promises of peace when there is no peace. Of an answer to a, 
and a cure to our woes when there's no answer or cure to our woes. Let's not be taken, and I know you good people know this, this vaccine, these vaccines we trust will work, and we do hope that they'll do what they're meant to do. But my friends, unfortunately, there's no vaccine or cure for the fact that our country is bordering on bankruptcy. There's no vaccine or cure for the social dislocation and the damage that's been done to family life, to children, and to those who are most vulnerable in our society. There's no vaccine or cure for the long-term effects of what we have done over these last eight months. We may have preserved some lives, although I think the debate will be about how many. We may well have preserved the institution of the NHS, but in so doing, we have caused great damage to our society. You know that as well as I do. And there's no quick fix. And our politicians also, there's no quick fix. So do pray for them, for they need it. And those who come and say, this is the answer, and that is the answer, and it's going to be, you know, cake and jam and everything tomorrow, do not be deceived. For Jesus goes on to say, be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. And then he speaks for, and I do appreciate it's hard, because then he's obviously casting the light of his attention, not just on the past and what happened in Jerusalem or past events, including Auschwitz and everything else, but he's also casting his light on what's going on in the world today and the things that we and other people, the countless billions who are living in our world today, are journeying through. And there's things going on that really, you know, again, all we hear in the main news is COVID, COVID, COVID. But he also speaks to the future, to that final day. Listen to what he says. In those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. He's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Notice how globally and eternally God's purposes are. Jesus will come again. We cannot speculate. Indeed, he goes on to warn us against speculating against the day or the hour, but he will return, and he will gather together all those who love him and care for him. Can I say on Monday, we had a funeral service, a very small funeral service here for Jim Dow, a faithful member of a congregation, how he used to struggle in on a Sunday member with his sticks and sit just where Anna is sitting today. Maybe even the family are listening to that, and if they are, then I hope you'll pick up what I'm going to say. I remember many years ago when he was moving to his flat or wee house that he lived in in Bothell. He was cleaning through things and he came across an old Bible, a Bible that he had got, been given, when he and Helen had gone forward way back in 1955 at the Billy Graham All Scotland Crusade in the Kelvin Hall. We actually were able to listen one day to the choir from that crusade singing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And inside the Bible were the, was the leaflets and the information that he had been given by the counselor when they had gone forward, and also his own little testimony. And he was talking, he said, oh, I don't know, my family are not that interested. Helen, perhaps, bless her, but the rest are not that interested. Should I just put this out? And I said, no. I said, keep that and leave that. And perhaps if the family are listening, perhaps one of you will find it as you clear through the house. Open that Bible up and read your father's testimony.
and heed the gospel of the saving grace of Jesus Christ that will go out to all nations. And that alone gives us hope on that final day when Jesus sends his angels and gathers his people from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and to the ends of the heavens. That means also those who have died in Christ. Irene. Jim. Mrs. Curry. Mrs. Rob. And others who have passed on from this fellowship over these past months. They are not forgotten. And we will be gathered together. That is that Advent hope this season. For he tells us, verse 31, that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And just very briefly as we finish. But then he says lastly, verse 32, But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. And Matthew's gospel have a whole series of parables explaining that. And then he goes on to say, Therefore keep watch, because you do not not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. And some versions have it, watch and pray. Be on your guard, be alert and pray. We have been encouraged, and rightly so, not to be lax. I don't think any of us will fall into that category over the coming period. Yes, a vaccine is coming, and that's good. And there will be some who will receive that early on, perhaps even before the end of the year. But we've been encouraged not to be casual, not to become lax, because the virus is still there, and it will still do its work. Well, my friends, if that's true in this particular situation, it should be true for all situations. As Christians, we are called to be those who are 24-7 alert and watching and praying, hearing God's word, seeing the signs of the times, having the mind of Christ, and therefore being able to face whatever happens, whatever calamities, whatever upsets. And I have to say, as I look out, some of you dear folk have borne witness to that, and I thank God for you, borne witness to the fact that whatever happens, the Lord endures and your faith has remained strong. He has kept you through the storm. When the water becomes the flood, when the mountains crash down, and when everything that seems settled is blown to the winds, the Lord has endured and kept his people. And our calling is not to be taken in, not to be deceived, not to be tossed about by every wind and wave, not to be filled with fear or paranoia, not to be caught up with self Keep safe. Well, yes, that's right. But not to become so obsessed with keeping safe we don't give a toss about anyone else. But to watch. And to be in your guard. 
to be alert and pray. Dick Jolly was a faithful worshipper at St. Paul's Church in Rust Hall in Kent. It was only just in the last few years that members of the congregation suddenly discovered that they had in their midst somebody who had twice received the military cross and his and for bravery. He didn't boast about it. He didn't say anything about it. But you know what he did say? He said, I never, ever prayed as hard as when I was on that tennis court in North East India. On the front line, he knew that God alone could keep him for 98 years. And in our front line, that truth remains true for all of us. Amen. Let's hear together a song. It was actually passed on to us by Graham McAuliffe. It's to a tune that we're familiar with. And it's an Advent hymn. And so we'll hear that together. Let's pray together. Already many homes within our community have their Christmas trees up at the start of Advent. People maybe don't even really appreciate what Advent's all about, but they put their trees up. Indeed, some people had Christmas decorations up at the beginning of November. And Lord, we can understand why in the midst of these trying times to lift our spirits and to cheer our hearts. We all can relate to that. But we thank you, O God, our Father, that we have a truth, a truth that is uncomfortable at times, but a truth that does cheer our hearts. There's a truth about the reality of the way things are and not some make-believe Disney, Hollywood incarnation of the Advent and Christmas season. But the world as it really is, a world that you have entered into, the child born in the manger, infant of Mary, a world that you have a passion for, a world that you grieve over in its waywardness and sinfulness, a world whose creation is groaning, waiting for its day of deliverance, a world where you have a purpose for your people, the elect of God, where you have a purpose for your ancient people, Israel, the Jews, where you have a purpose for the church, the bride of Christ. A purpose to bring that people to yourself and to bring glory to your name. And so as we enter into this Advent season, cheer our hearts with that promise that you are with us, Emmanuel. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And that through all the perplexing and changing scenes of life, when that which seems to be so absolute sometimes falls down round about us, you alone are the rock. And you've set our feet upon the rock. And you've put a new song in our hearts, a song of praise to our God. May these truths and the mysteries of life keep us in humility and in love 
before you. Forgive us, for our sins are many, and our need is great. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And now may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit rest upon us and journey with us through this Advent season and forevermore. Amen.